Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's uh, program, uh, it's uh, the book Where the Water Goes with author David Owen. It's about the Colorado River and water problems in the western U.S. A couple of comments from uh, Steve, who has commented on a couple of recent uh, programs. Wanted to get these in ahead of the program today. Uh, the first is in response to a recent program uh, with philosopher Hugh LaFollette. Uh, his book, In Defense of Gun Control, was a very interesting book on that day. And here's what Steve says, the headline of his email, and another thing. Steve says, the subject line is intended to be self-deprecating as I take issue with something said days ago on Access Utah, totally water over the dam. It's not of consequence, except that it's basic statistics and a professor of philosophy really, really should know better. I'm talking about Hugh LaFollette, of course. In reply to an email I'd submitted making a reference to gun violence statistics, while granting that he was somewhat sympathetic to my point, he wasn't putting much stock in it because, quote, correlation does not mean causation, end quote. That was a dumb thing to say, and a college professor really ought to know better. Let me explain. It's true that when two independent variables correlate, causation cannot be confidently inferred. But when one of the variables is dependent, causation is the only possibility. It cannot be otherwise. In the present example, gun violence is a dependent variable. The violence depends on the presence of a gun. Without the gun, it is impossible to have gun violence. So, of course, there is causation, and a professor of philosophy of all people ought not to hide behind such obvious logical fallacy. Thanks for reading my little rant, and get off my lawn, says Steve. Thanks for that. And then uh, Steve wrote back a few days later uh, when we were talking with uh, Jennifer Siner, uh, who is a professor of English at Utah State University. And we were talking about uh, several books, including uh, her um, memoir, Ordinary Trauma. And uh, here is what uh, Steve says. Catching Access Utah tonight on The Rebound. I meant that... Uh, I mean that I missed the live broadcast this morning, so I'm listening to the rebroadcast tonight. In his conversation with his guest, Tom paraphrased her surprising insight that the good news about pain is that it reminds us that we are alive, for those philosophically so disposed anyway. I haven't read Joseph Conrad since I was in high school many decades ago, but a few things have really stuck with me over the years, and one of them is that Lord Jim contains a similar insight. As I remember the episode from the book, it comes while Jim is being tortured. As terrible as Jim finds his torture, he's ironically grateful for the sharp presence of the pain, because pain is exactly what it is uh, which keeps him aware that he is vital and still alive. I've never been in the extremists of torture or being tossed into a bucket or left for dead, so I'm grateful when such profound insights are bestowed. Thanks for it, says Steve. And thanks for those comments, Steve. You can comment as well, uh, upraxis at gmail.com. Now uh, we'll revisit our conversation with David Owen. His book is Where the Water Goes. This is uh, was first broadcast in May of 2017. Welcome now to Access Utah. In his new book, Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River, writer David Owen takes us on an adventure downriver along a labyrinth of waterways, reservoirs, power plants, farms, fracking sites, ghost towns, and RV parks to the spot near the U.S.-Mexico border where the river runs dry. And he says water issues are never just about water. So among the topics uh, he reports on in this book, uh, climate change, land ownership, green energy, native rights, western water law, 
American-Mexican border politics. David Owen is a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine and author of more than a dozen books, lives in northwest Connecticut with his wife, the writer Ann Hodgman, and he joins us for the hour today. David Owen, uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, Interested to learn, you uh, grew up in Kansas City? I did. And as you write, uh, drolly, uh, everyone wants to get out of Kansas City. Yeah, that's right. Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about other places, and uh, mostly about the West. My family took uh, vacations in Colorado when I was a kid, and, and I attended a summer camp that I loved, and then a sort of an outward bound, like, uh, um, you know, climbing and backpacking uh, school in the uh, southwestern Colorado. And then, uh, amazingly, when, when I was um, 17, my parents let me and a friend go off by ourselves to what's now the Wemenuchi um, Wilderness Area for two weeks, and uh, it was one of the, my favorite experiences ever. But I'm not sure that I would have let my own ch- children do that. Yeah, 17. That's uh, that's pretty good. And you had a interesting experience, uh, kind of a preview for this book. Uh, you spent a summer um, watering lawns, I guess, in Colorado I did. Springs. Uh, I was working in Colorado Springs one summer when I was in college, and we uh, we spent most of our time. Uh, watering the grass with with sprinklers and big long hoses and then as soon as we got the grass tall enough we'd cut it and i never it never occurred to me at the time where the where the water we were using had come from uh, and we used a lot because the the whole condominium complex had been built on top of what was once a uh, a quarry in what's essentially desert high desert and so it it was like watering a sponge really and uh but it, i later learned that that Colorado Springs was getting its water from from uh, mostly from groundwater and from from local streams. And, but as the city grew, it came to depend, as much of the Front Range does now, on water from the other side of the mountains, um, from uh, water over the Continental Divide. That um, through a series of really sort of extraordinary infrastructure projects that date back a long time uh, and took a long time to complete, move water from the West of the mountains, where something like 80% of the state's rainfall uh, occurs, uh, to the east side of the mountains, where something like 85% of the state's population lives. Yeah, and you're right that uh, it, it, absent those projects, uh, I guess the the bulk of the population of Colorado would have to live west of the... That's right. The people who live west of the mountains tend to view people who live east of the mountains as the enemy, that they're stealing our water, uh, but they would probably be more unhappy if all those people on the east side of the mountains moved west and yeah. spread out to the extent that they'd have to to you know to uh, to live off uh, water directly i think that when in the imagination of the people who live in the west all those people on the east would just disappear but mm-hmm. of course it's, it's it's this is true in utah too water is complicated because the people who live in what seems like uh, natural serenity on the west side of the mountains actually depend on all those millions of people on the east side of the mountains for uh, you know, Amazon Prime wouldn't be bringing them camping supplies mm-hmm. if, if Denver and Colorado Springs and Boulder didn't exist, and the, the economies of the west side of the mountains depend on them. And, and furthermore, the people on the east side of the mountains actually use a very small percentage of the, the water in the state. Uh, Denver water uses something like 2% of the, the water in uh, Colorado. What's true in Colorado is true in Utah, is true everywhere, is that the big the big water consumers uh the big water consumer is agriculture. So something like eighty percent of the water in the Colorado River watershed is uh, goes to irrigation, irrigated agriculture. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, you, uh, there's a, a scene in the book, a brief scene, but illustrates an important point uh, where uh, I can't remember some uh, group was holding a focus group or panel, and there was a resident of Denver who insisted um, that uh, none of the water that they were using came from uh, west of the Continental Divide. It illustrates a point that uh, most people um, don't know where the water comes from. No, it's true, uh, and it's it's not just true in the West; it's true everywhere. And it's, it, but it, but it's especially it's especially true with the Colorado because many of the people who in the West who depend on water from the Colorado River live very far away from it. Um, Phoenix and Tucson depend on water from the Colorado; they're more than three hundred miles from the river. Uh, Los Angeles, more than two hundred miles. Uh, Salt Lake City gets water from the Colorado River and its tributaries, and it's um, it's far away. The the Denver, Boulder, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs are on the other side of the mountains. Um, the closest big city that takes water from the Colorado is, is Las Vegas, which is only 30 miles away. And so people tend to focus when they think about, well, what's why does the Colorado River run out before it reaches its end? And they tend to focus on Las Vegas because it's the, it's the place that looks it looks like the guilty party because it's the closest to the river of the cities that depend on it. Uh, but actually, uh, Nevada, Las Vegas are very, very small users because when Western states divided up the river uh, beginning in the 1920s, there hardly anybody lived in, in Nevada. Um, Las Vegas wasn't even a hick town yet. So it was, it got the smallest, the very smallest uh, piece of, of the river. You uh, you write that uh, you chose the Colorado River in part because it does run dry. This is, so it's a bold relief. We could talk about water issues. It does, and it's it, it, the, even it's it's kind of it, it means that you can you can really account for where every drop of that river goes because it it doesn't none none of it reaches the the sea under ordinary circumstances. Uh, very rarely since the 1960s, and only once since the 1990s has the water in the river gotten all the way to the end at the northern end of the Gulf of California. Uh, and the reason is that you know we we use it we use it all up both in in the United States and and Mexico, and it's uh, we make it, it, very efficient use of it. I mean, there's there's plenty of waste, of course, but that river is not a big river. Uh, the Mississippi carries as much water every couple of weeks as the Colorado does an entire in an entire year, uh, and yet the Colorado River supplies water to something like you know 36 million people. It, it irrigates six million acres of agriculture. It counts for something like 26 billion dollars worth of of recreation. Uh, so it's a it's a huge part of the uh, of the life of the West of the West of 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 Western states and of their economies, and uh, uh, you you wouldn't guess that as you stand next to it because even when it's even when it's sort of uh, even before we've sucked it dry, it's, it's it doesn't look it's it's not a big river. It's it's not miles across uh, except in places where we've turned it into lakes. You have a funny anecdote in the book where you compare the Colorado to the Mississippi through a personal anecdote. There was a time you took a ferry your car across the ferry at Mississippi, and you had uh, I think a bottle of whiskey or something. Yeah, I did. I, I bought a bottle at the House of Bourbon in uh, Kentucky uh, liquor store, and uh, it was a little. It was a, it was a, a wonderful experience. It was this little tiny two car ferry. The guy came out with it practically with his napkin under his chin because he'd been eating dinner, and uh, took me across the river. We were the 
we crossed right into the setting sun, which was enormous. The whole river was red, and the river was a couple of miles across at that point, and I had time as we crossed to drink a fair bit of the the bottle but there's there's no part of the Colorado that's anything anything like that there <laughs> there it's you could almost you could you could certainly hit a golf ball to the other side you could almost throw throw a ball to the other side yeah and so I guess this is a good river to study when you're studying water issues as well because it does seem at least in comparison uh, you know fragile it's there's a lot of people depending on on the river and uh, and uh, you know we do, we're reaching extremity in some cases aren't we yeah, we are. Uh, the 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 West is 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 has experienced over you know the past. Uh, it's now. I mean, it's coming on since the, well since about since at least the turn of the millennium has experienced a, a a succession of drought years, and we've had a wet wet year in the in the West, and so people are are hopeful that you know it's going to be wet from now on. But if you look back at uh, tree ring studies. Uh, the thing that stands out is that there, through history, before there were people, there were long periods of what uh, scientists refer to as mega droughts of these extended decades-long periods, when you know their rainfall might spike up here and there for a year, but the, the steady trend was was very very dry, uh, and uh, the concern is that as snowfall declines in the mountains that feed the river as temperatures rise uh those mega droughts will be uh, when they re- occur again will be exacerbated by these other by these other trends and it's a serious concern because the, even when the river appears to be running full that we've divided up more water in that river than is actually there uh, water lawyers in the west talk about paper water which is water that people have a legal claim to from that river. And then they contrast that with wet water, which is what you and I think of water. And ever since the, the, uh, we began exploiting the river in a serious way, there's always been more paper water in the Colorado than there has been wet water. And the main reason for that is that when the states began to divide up the river in the 1920s, uh, there was more water in it than there had been for 400 years, and the all the assumptions on volume were made based on what turned out to be um, historically unusual uh, flow figures. So the the people who divided the river uh, were were to a large extent dividing water that wasn't there. Um, it didn't have a huge impact on people until fairly recently because it took a long time before we figured out how to use up. Um, all the water that was there, but it's increasingly uh, it's increasingly an issue now in the West because uh, we're we're much better at at um, at diverting water from the river, and the, the we're starting to to run up against uh, the ceilings of what's actually what's actually there. Some of that some of the uh, potential shortage has been masked by the fact that we have these two enormous reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Um, but those, each the the two those two reservoirs currently contain less than half the water that they uh, that they would if they were full that they last did in in the late 1990s around around 2000. Uh, Lake Mead's at something like 38 percent of capacity. Um, so the, the 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 states below those 
big reservoirs have, have used them sort of like credit cards have sort of been pushing their credit limits and using water that that um, is not necessarily being replenished by by natural forces that keep water in that river in fact there's a scene that stands out to me you're you're at lake mead you're looking out at the at the reservoir and um noticing i think everybody in the group is noticing how low the the reservoir is, and and everybody goes silent. <laughs> well, you definitely you definitely see it. Anybody who's visited Lake Mead, if you go to Hoover Dam, uh, the 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 drop in the level of the lake is impossible to miss because as that water declines, it leaves a sort of a mineral bathtub ring on the cliffs that uh, on the canyon walls that surround the lake. It's this white white stripe, uh, and uh, so it shows exactly how full the lake was when it was really full and how far the level has fallen and the 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 gap between the surface of the lake and the top of the bathtub ring is about 130 feet right now so it's a it's a it's a major it's a major decline more you know as more water than is in the lake right now is is gone is gone from it um and you you especially see that when you're in a boat as i I went out in a boat with a guy who owns a marina on the lake, and when you get out next to the bathtub ring, when you're right below it, looking up, it's like you know you're looking up. It's like looking up at a 13-story building. From a distance, it looks like a, you know, it can look like kind of a narrow band around the lake. But you get right up close to it, you see it's a, it's a real, it's a significant drop. Um, the what's missing from that lake would <laughs> is enough to be one of the largest reservoirs in the United States. So uh, you write. Let me read this. Um... Uh, where the water goes uh, is crucial to our future. The story is crucial to the future. How a patchwork of engineering marvels, Byzantine legal agreements, aging infrastructure, and neighborly cooperation enables life to flourish in the desert. And the disastrous consequences we face when any part of that tenuous system uh, fails. What struck out to uh, what stuck out to me with, from this was neighborly cooperation. There, there, you know, there's it, it depends a lot not only between states but between neighbors. If your neighbor has senior water rights, you have junior water rights. You're at the mercy of that neighbor, and and until things get really bad, I guess it, it is cooperation. Yeah, it's, you know, there's some people cooperate, some people don't. But there's the 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 first thing you mentioned this this is a remarkable legal structure that uh, governs water use in the the basin of the Colorado. Um, the 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 sort of founding document is something called the Colorado River Compact, which was an agreement among seven states that either uh, border the, that border either the river or its tributaries, and it's the it's the doc it's the agreement by which they 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 divided up the river among themselves, and then over the decades that a, a, a body of law has accumulated around that document. It's known sort of uh, uh, to, all together as the uh, the law of the river and it's it's not all written down anywhere it's not a it's not something you can look up in a law book it's a sort of amorphous uh collection of laws and customs and agreements and uh you know and i don't <laughs> i don't know what else but nobody can really define it and yet it, in some ways it has successfully managed this 
um, very fragile resource that is relied on by lots and lots of people. In other ways, I think w- when people look at it, when they look at this this body of laws at water law in the West, it, it, it seems ridiculous. Uh, one of the, the the founding tenet is what's known as prior appropriation or first in time, first in right. Uh, in my part of the country, the water use is governed by what's known as riparian law, which was, has its basis in, in English common law. And it, the basic idea is that if, if you own property along a stream, uh, you have a right to use uh, that water equitably uh, shared with your uh, other neighboring property owners. You share you share the right. But that is not the way it works in the Colorado River states and much of the West. It There, the, the, the rule is that the first person... Uh, the general rule is that the the first person to make beneficial use of water from a stream gains the right to use that much water for that purpose forever. And the reason that different system arose is that in the West there just isn't enough water to to be useful if you share it among all the people, among all the property owners who might have a claim to it. Uh, it, The the problem first arose during the gold rush when a miner on a stream would divert water into a sluice box as he was looking for gold, and then somebody with a claim upstream would do the same thing, and the the stream would dry up. Uh, It didn't work for them to share that water because if they divided it in half, there wasn't enough for both of them. So the the system that arose in the West was that the first person, the first person in line has a right that... Uh, must be fulfilled before the second person in line gets anything at all. So in dry in dry times, uh, the, you can work your way quite. You can dry out people pretty far up the list, up to the up to the senior users at the top. Uh, when 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 things are when the, when the water is really running, everybody gets their water. But if it's if it's low, then the junior users, the people who came later, uh, get nothing. Um, until that those senior users have been have been fully satisfied with what they're entitled to by the by by the by the laws in those states hmm. this problem writ large of course is, is potential conflicts between the states right you have the uh, the upper basin states that uh, at least I don't know until recently have not used all the the water and the lower basin states which are routinely uh, overusing the the water they were allocated Um and and at the same time things are getting drier. So yeah, it's a, the, California is the big has always been the big user, and in fact, the reason the states came, made these agreements was that they worried back in the early 20th century that California was growing so fast, uh, so much faster than other Western states that before those other Western states, including Utah, before they were in a position to use any water from the river. California would basically have made a priority claim to all of it, and so they got together to divide it up. Uh, California got the biggest share, uh, but the other states uh, were received shares too. It's just it's been fairly it, it, it's been fairly recent before it, 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 it hasn't been many years since um, those other states have been in a position to even think about taking. Um, Taking what their uh, their paper claims uh, entitle them to, Utah, the upper basin states. In fact, that's Utah, Colorado, uh, and uh, and New Mexico. Um, they've they've never taken all the water. And Wyoming, they've never taken all the water that they're entitled to by the by that agreement. Uh, and they're starting to think that they would like to. Uh, but at the same time, the the 
the river is making it clear that it doesn't contain enough water to satisfy even the even the the uh, the entitlements that the that that compact uh, uh, um, uh, grants them. You know, much less the much less more than that, much less the excess that some of the states have, have gotten accustomed to to taking. So what what happens when those uh, you know quote unquote credit card reservoirs <laughs> go go dry, Lake Powell, Lake Mead? Yeah, well, we don't know. Uh, we don't know, and they're 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 still a considerable distance from growing dry. But there, but the the there are concerns and and a, a long list of concerns. And one one is that a state like Utah, for example, which has never taken as much water as the Colorado River Compact entitles it to, would like to take some of that water. In fact, there's a big project that Utah wants to undertake to move water from Lake Powell, build a pipeline from Lake Powell to the St. George area. Uh, and the water that it would like to, to divert from, from Lake Powell is really a pretty small fraction of what its theoretical entitlement is, and yet it's enough to, to, <laughs> to make everybody else worry that, the, that, that um, there will be even less uh, water for, for everyone to divide than, there, than there's turning, turning out to be. So one thing that's happening is that the states are getting more creative than they used to be about uh sharing some of the risk of uh of running low on water so you have uh states doing things that they did not do early on which is uh you know, making agreements from themselves among themselves uh these co- complicated agreements whereby one state will 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 sort of in effect, store water in another state, or where the United States will allow Mexico to keep water that it can't currently use in Lake Mead, which has benefits for the American users because it keeps the level of Lake Mead above the point where the federal government, by law, would step in and tell everybody what to do. I think one of the one of the great, uh, probably the most powerful uh, forces. Uh, Making the states think about cooperating with each other is their fear that the federal government will uh, will 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 come in and take over. Which the the various legal decisions, there are trigger points that would cause that to happen, and the states that share the water are uh, eager not to have that happen. And so they've 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 been accommodating in ways that they haven't al- recently in ways that they haven't always been, just to 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 try to keep that from happening for as long as they possibly can. If you just joined us, we're talking about the Colorado River and related water issues. The book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. And my guest is the writer David Owen. Uh, We'll take a break and we come back, more discussion. And uh, let me just uh, give you this brief quote, talk about this when we come back. Uh, David Owen writes, Water problems are straightforward in one way. Without water, we die, not centuries from now. So he goes on to say that then we find solutions. Um, but he goes on to say that as you draw closer, though, you realize that every new solution creates additional problems. There are trade-offs. We'll talk about those and much more when we come back from this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. Every memory you think you have of the past, the house you grew up in, your first kiss. It's not simply an idea. It's a physical trace left in your brain. I own those memories. They define me. But what happens when those memories are stolen from you? In the blink of an eyelid. Can you imagine what's right to have one night 20 years long? That's what it's been like. 
Just like this. That's This Week on Radio Lab. Tomorrow at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Cash Valley ENT and Allergy Clinic for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by calling us at 435-797-3138. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with writer David Owen. His latest book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. Before we get into some of uh, the problems and solutions, the trade-offs, David Owen, I'd uh, I'd like to uh, spend a little bit of time on just a fascinating, what you call, a confounding ecological paradox, and that's the Salton Sea. Uh, just, just incredibly fascinating. The interaction, you know, you could study this uh, absent humans, but uh, humans are in the equation, right? And that's uh, the whole yep. reason why we study this. Salton Sea, for people who don't know, was the at least the latest, uh, the modern incarnation of this was the result of a, of a whoops, wasn't it? A engineering yes <laughs> mistake, which created this huge, huge lake. Well, tell us a little bit about this. Well, in the when. Farmers first began farming in the, the Imperial Valley, in very southern California, right next to the Mexican border. And they were able to do it because they, only because they could divert irrigation water from the Colorado River about 30 miles away. Uh, in uh, the early 1900s, uh, in, in the hopes of getting more water into that area, they, cut a, a, they made a cut in the, in the bank of the river and accidentally uh, diverted the entire um, Colorado River across this vast area and into a an enormous depression uh, called the Salton Sink, uh, which is actually what used to be the northern end of the Gulf of California. The Gulf of California used to go basically all the way up to Palm Springs, and uh, it uh, the the shape of that of the the Gulf and of and the path of the river changed many many times over the over the the millennia and over millions of years, and uh, anyway, it was dry at that moment, but it filled, and the the, the river flowed into this hole in the ground for uh, almost two years and created a 400-square-mile lake. It's what's called an endoheric lake, which means that it has no outlet other than what soaks into the ground and uh, and what evaporates. And it's uh, it's lower than uh, almost as low as Death Valley. It's it's just it's it's a big it's a big hole in the desert that's filled up with water. The if uh, if the um, if you left it by itself, it would disappear pretty quickly because it, about the water level falls due to evaporation by about six feet a year. Uh, the reason it's still there is that beginning in the 1920s, farmers in the Imperial Valley began. Uh, diverting waste irrigation wastewater, water that had flowed across their fields, water that they were using to flush uh, salts out of their fields, they began diverting it into the Salton Sea and, and, and created a sort of uh, uh, water-level equilibrium, as a result of which people began looking at this, this body of water, which was created by human engineering imbecility as a you know as, as a sort of potential southern lake tahoe it became an amazing it was the it was more visited than than uh than than yosemite uh for a period the beach boys kept a boat there the marx brothers kept a boat there guy lombardo the band leader set uh, uh speedboat 
speed records there. There were huge, these huge uh, boat ramps to lower uh, boats with water skiers into them. People, there was a, a rush on land around, people buying vacation land around the lake. Well, because water leaves that lake only by evaporation, it, it gradually it got saltier and saltier, that even as this irrigation water was flowing into it. Uh, the lake during its uh, resort heyday had been stocked with all kinds of game fish. People used to go there to, to fish, but as the water got saltier, as, as chemical concentrations rose, as, as the heat, that, which is intense, uh, sort of created these enormous algae blooms. Almost everything in that lake that was alive died off, except I think the, the last species to hang on is tilapia, and they're, they're hanging on only barely. Uh, so it was a an engineering accident that became this kind of environmental disaster. But at the same time, it's this extraordinary environmental resource because it's it's the largest lake in California. It's one of, you know, a major surviving wetland when many have been lost. And for birds migrating on the, the Pacific Flyway, the, the migration route that runs all the way up and down the Americas, on the, the west coast of the Americas, it's a, it's a major stop. As, as, as one environmentalist told me, the birds see water, and they don't know the history of it, they stop. So it's this paradox of an environmental disaster that's also an extraordinary environmental asset. And it's threatened, uh, again, paradoxically, by California's efforts to be more efficient in its water use. The farmers in the Imperial Valley have not necessarily been stingy water users. They've been accustomed to use they're, they're the largest single user of Colorado River in the entire basin. And in order to provide water to San Diego, Los Angeles, people living in those places, they've been cut. They've been cutting back in recent years, and starting next year, they will uh, they will have a huge impact on Salton Sea because they're, the amount of water that they flush into the sea, which is in, historically has maintained the level of that lake, uh, is going to be dramatically reduced, and as a result, uh, the lake will shrink even faster than it is right now. It's down to about 350 square miles, and it's going to get smaller. And as it does, it exposes what used to be the this lake bed that's, that has for, you know, millennia, and especially for the past century, has been accumulating salts, uh, chemical, agricultural chemicals, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and as the lake shrinks, that lake bed becomes exposed. The winds in that region are powerful, and they pick it up. And, and what's called the windshed of that area extends a long way, all the way to metropolitan Los Angeles. So there is a potential uh, health threat that overlying a, a large uh, portion of Southern California. That nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. There's some there's some efforts to try to make the best use possible of the uh, uh, of the water that is entering that lake to kind of spread it out to c- keep more of the lake covered. As w- one environmental said to me, it's, you know, it's, it's, since the 1920s, about a million acre feet of water. That's that's <laughs> it's uh, you know a million acres covered a foot deep in water have have flowed into that that lake, maintaining its level. Uh, it's a huge amount of water that's going to fall in half. But as he said, you know, half a million acre feet is still, a, you know, a, an astonishing amount of water for any agricultural purpose. It's just that it's not enough to maintain the lake at a level that keeps the uh, that keeps the uh, lake bed fully covered. So there are projects. Uh, one of the most promising of which is probably the building of dikes that that make it possible to 
cover more of the lake bed with water to keep it to keep it underwater, but under shallower water, just spreading it, spreading it out more. But it's 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 expensive, and it's as he said, it's hard to uh, get politicians excited about um, trying to drum up support to preserve an ecological disaster. It's uh, it's not it's <laughs> it's not a glamorous environmental project. Uh, it's a, it's hard to explain, and it's phenomenally expensive. Mm. Um, so it's a uh, it has at least three strikes against it, and it will be uh, uh, interesting to see what happens. And, and California has a major interest in making sure that something does happen, because as a result of uh, various agreements, the state has assumed uh, legal liability for, uh, for example, the the possible health effects that arise from the, the uh, increasing exposure of the lake bed. Yeah, it is very complicated. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with David Owen. His new book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. That does get us into uh, talking about some of these trade-offs. I definitely want to talk about this. So uh, let me just quote you here. Uh, Water problems in the western United States, when viewed from afar, can seem tantalizingly easy to solve. All we need to do is turn off the fountains at the Bellagio, stop selling hay to China, ban golf, cut down the almond trees, kill all the lawyers. But you just go on to say, as you draw closer, though, you realize that every new solution creates additional problems and that tinkering with even small elements of the river's vast network of beneficiaries can upset dozens of uh, others. So we're going to talking about that. One, one point you make is, for example, water conservation efforts can backfire. We, we, we hear a lot about conservation. It's preached to us in most cities in the West. Uh, for example, you write, improvements to irrigation systems can actually harm ecosystems. Yeah, and this is, what, this is the, the danger in the Imperial Valley, which is that as farmers become more efficient in their, uh, in their irrigation, less water runs off of their fields. That means that less water flows into that uh, into the Salton Sea, which means that the surface of the lake declines. Um, the, so it looks as though they're, they're becoming less wasteful, but that, that, that uh, elimination of waste has, causes problems of its own. There are lot, it's just sort of a whole category of, of issues that, fall, that, that, that are similar, that are related. One is that the water that reaches the Imperial Valley from the Colorado River comes through. It's a, it's a canal called the All American Canal. Uh, it was when it was originally built. It was just a it's just a, it's just a trench dug in the desert, and uh, quite a lot of well, tens of thousands of acre feet of water were leaking out of it into the ground because it was it was it was just it was basically a trench dug in sand. Uh, the one of the ways that California has. Uh, conserved water is by lining a large part of that of that canal with concrete so that water no longer leaks into the ground. Uh, and, and California will refer to that as, as tens of thousands of acre feet of water that have been saved. But that water that was leaking was uh, supporting groundwater just across the border in Mexico, in an agricultural area in Mexico. It was reducing the salinity of, of, of wells that people were drawing water from, both for drinking and for, and for irrigation. And so what the water wasn't really saved. It was really water that was moved from one set of users uh, in Mexico to another set of users in San Diego. And so it was, it was, we shifted a resource. We didn't create one from out of nothing. And consequences like that occur in different forms. Uh, it, it can occur in different forms when, when it, with conservation programs, even when they seem enormously successful. The same is actually true with, with, 
with energy efficiency, where in any the real long-term impact of any improvement of of efficiency of any kind depends on what you do with the savings. Uh, if you replace your appliances with with appliances that are more energy efficient, it's, it's an idea that's often sold. Like you're going to save all this money. Well, the real long-term ultimate environmental impact depends on what you do with that money. Uh, that money that you save, if you just reinvest it in, uh, you know, taking taking an airplane trip to Europe, you've what you've really done is just shift one form of energy consumption to another. You haven't uh, attacked the the overall problem, which is which is total energy use. And the same thing occurs with water. If we, uh, you know, uh, one of the another paradox is that waste is a kind of reservoir. Uh, if you have if you water your lawn. Uh, you can stop in a drought, uh, but once you've stopped, once you've replaced all your grass with gravel, then you don't have that uh, you don't have that slack uh, to take in in times of trouble. So if we if if we make households more efficient in their use of water, but then reinvest that saving in creating other subdivisions that depend on that that then become dependent on that same water, all we we just we've stretched the supply farther. We've done what looks like something really intelligent we've because we're getting more value more economic value from every gallon of water but we we we've we've actually you know increased our vulnerability to uh to shortages when they occur and it often um, we've had other environmental impacts too because you know it, if you if you use your ability to conserve water simply to support uh sprawling suburbs then you're you're having other environmental impacts too that go far beyond it far beyond water. Uh, so it's all, it's, it's like all, <laughs> it's like all these issues. They're, they're, the, they're big and they, they, they feed into each other and they, they, um, uh, they, each time you tip over one domino, it falls against another. And, uh, it's, I think it's, it's, there aren't necessarily, uh, we're not used to looking at trying to see the problem whole, trying to see our environmental challenges whole, because even people who worry about you know, the future of civilization tend to specialize. You have water people, uh, you have energy people, you have climate people, you have, uh, you have urban design people, and they, sometimes they work at cross-purposes to each other. It's, it's, there aren't a lot of, of, uh, of uh, I guess you would say, generalists in these these critical fields, and, and even if they were, they wouldn't necessarily have the legal tools that they would need to uh, to to implement changes that would that would that would take take effect across these different categories. Um, so so it's it's a it's a challenge. Yeah. So you're 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 making me, on one level, feel better about my green lawn. I mean, that's you know, I'm <laughs> yeah, part of I'm part of the you know the the waste reservoir, which can then be be used. I not feel so guilty about it, um, but I, I know that's not your intention. And there's there's solutions. You have a chapter on solutions. I want to get to that. One of the one of the points you make uh, along this line of trade offs and seeing this as the big picture. Sometimes we don't do that. Is uh, we we like to think about our national parks, but you said that comes with a cost. Oh yeah, this is you know, and I. I love our national parks. My wife and I just took a wonderful car trip down the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is one of the, the most remarkable um, 
I think it's the, it maybe the most single most visited element of the National Park Service, and it's it's extraordinary. And, and yet, like it, you can see with it clearly, it's it, what makes it possible is is the car is you know is our famous American mobility. And the same is true in the history of the national parks. They what led to the the sort of the flourishing of the national parks was the the rise of the automobile. It meant you could jump in your car and go visit these extraordinary places. And so the we tend to think of them as you know my you tend to think even of visiting a national park as something that has environmental value because it's it's you know I'm 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 re I'm reaffirming my commitment to the natural world. I'm exposing myself to nature's wonders and therefore, you know, make it more likely that I will value them uh, when I go to the polls or when I when I think about my own consumption. Uh and yet what makes them possible is is this it, they're all bound up in 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 the problem we're trying in the problems we're trying to solve. And now the, the none of this means that these these problems are not solvable. And when you look at American uh, water challenges by comparison with many other parts of the world. You know, we we don't have we don't have a water problem uh, by comparison with India, say, uh, or with uh, with Syria, uh, with with whole sections of the Middle East. Uh, and, and furthermore, we're perfectly capable of solving the the problems that we do have. We're perfectly capable of of uh you know we're smart enough to do all these things it's just it's just a matter of 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 seeing uh, of deciding that the long term benefits are uh, worth the the short term sacrifices that people would have to make in order to bring them about and that's where we that's where we tend to stumble but um they're they're perfectly within our capabilities as uh as thinking clever thinking human beings to to deal with these things with the with the Colorado River the, the 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 overriding issue, the issue that that sort of underlies all the Western water problems, is that you can't forever use more water than exist, more of a resource than actually exists. And so, it's not enough to simply get better about using more than all the water. We have to really f- deal with the issue from the top. At some point, there has to be some decision that. You know, we're not going to divide up more water than is than there is in the river, which means that people who uh, that states that are accustomed to thinking of themselves as having a legal right to a resource, you know, may end up thinking having to think in a different way about that resource, which will which will not be easy for it won't be easy for states like California that have really uh, are really sort of critically dependent. On uh, a very large share of this particular resource, and then also, but also states like Utah, where you know, they've never uh, used a, as much water as they're theoretically entitled to, and it's it's very it would be very hard, I think, for Utah to walk away from what it thinks of as a legal right without feeling that that they were getting screwed, you know, that the state was getting screwed by the people in Arizona and California, for example. Let's take another break. When we come back, let's talk about some solutions. Uh, David Owen's new book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. We'll talk more following this break. What happens when a question... Could we knock Earth off its orbit? Will we ever run out of new music? Why are things creepy? What about the five-second rule? Is that true? Doesn't have an easy answer. Humans aren't just about asking questions. There's always a push and pull between should we keep asking or is it better left with what we know today? 
I'm Guy Raz. Ideas about the spirit of inquiry. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jess Kanani, the social media and web management intern here at Utah Public Radio. While I don't do much reporting on the air, I have the pleasure of interacting with you, our listeners, on the web to help bring stories to you from beyond the air. Check us out on upr.org, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on our app for news updates, community event information, award-winning feature series, and much more. If you have any content requests, we'd love to hear them using the hashtag IamUPR. And as always, thanks for listening. You're listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with David Owen. His new book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. And uh, we have reached our last segment, as I said, about six minutes left uh, in this discussion. I want to get to uh, ticking through a few of these uh, solutions. Um, so I want to start with agriculture. You said that agriculture is uh, a big uh, part of the problem, quote-unquote, a big user of water. So agriculture needs to be part of the solution. Uh, how... What are some solutions under that heading? It's tricky. The, the, I think what what often happens with people's first reaction is, well, we just have, we you know let's stop growing this or let's stop growing that, without looking to see the the role that that crop or that group of farms plays in the community that has come to depend on it. Uh, one of the the places I write about is a vineyard in in uh, near Grand Junction, Colorado, in the Grand Valley, an irrigated area in, in Colorado. And you could you could very definitely make a logical case that it's ridiculous to be irrigating this land at all. And probably especially ridiculous to be growing growing grapes, uh making wine in uh in western Colorado, especially because the wine that this winery sells isn't even necessarily made with grapes that are grown there. Um, last year wasn't wasn't at all or the year before. Uh and yet, the, you know, there's a whole, the, the whole community depends on that, those vineyards, not for the wine that they produce so much as for the tourists that they attract to then, you know, eat in the restaurants and stay in the hotels and take part in the bicycle, you know, they bring their bicycles and they, they support an entire economy. So you, you sort of, you, you, you start, you try to move one piece and you end up, you realize that you're moving lots and lots of pieces. There have been some uh, efforts, some very successful efforts in some parts of uh, of the West in, in Colorado, Eastern Colorado, especially to make it to do, do what's called you, you fallow, you pay farmers not to to leave fields fallow for a certain period of time, and that means that the water that they ordinarily would have used can be used for something else. But that too has to be it has to be done carefully, because if you if you recklessly dry up too much land, you can destroy. You can destroy the irrigation systems and the drainage systems that, that the irrigation systems depend on. You can also put, you know, all the, the, the people who, farm workers and the people who own the stores that supply those farmers, uh, you can put them out of business because the entire communities depend on the, this sort of functioning machine. So it has to be done carefully, and it, and it can be. There are examples where it is done, where you, you place limits on how much land can be fallowed. You place uh, limits on how long it, it can be, and, 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 and you spread it around so that, uh, so that all the benefits don't go uh, to one, play, to, to one uh, set of owners and, and all the, the, the damages fall on another. Uh, it's not easy to do, but there are places that are doing it. I think there are also 
has to be a broader view of beneficial use of water than, than historically we've had. I mean, initially when the, the highest and best uses of water in the West was, was mining, agriculture, and basically that's it. When the people who drew up the the first agreements about the uh, how to use the Colorado River, the idea of recreation wasn't a part of it. Conservation, as we think of it today, certainly wasn't a part of it. Their environmental value, what, the, the sort of environmental threats in those days were all viewed the other direction. It was threats that the environment posed to us. And so I think that there's a there's a way of thinking of resources where where you and resource explo- exploitation where you think of all the uses, including you know just the the environmental value of allowing a river to flow into the sea, where it supports ecosystem where that freshwater influx is critical to certain ecosystems. If you think of all these things as 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 beneficial uses of the water, you have a better framework for thinking how you're going to divide it up and uh, the uh, but it's not it's not exactly what we're accustomed to doing historically but increasing increasingly you do see it and there there, there are people who are it, it means that everybody ends up with not exactly what they were hoping for because you have all these competing uh competing benefits and you have to decide how to allocate them sort of like triage of mm-hmm. uh, uh of environmental resources as we sort of as we sort of push our exploitation of what the earth has to offer uh, right to the edge of what it can sustain. We are reaching the end of our time here. Uh, There's much else in the book. You can read about uh, some other possible solutions, desalination, uh, diversion, uh, larger uh, diversion projects, um, cloud seeding, uh, much more in the book. The book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. And the author is David Owen, who has joined us uh, for the hour. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And uh, thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan. 